feverishly trying to to dial her a couple different numbers and I was going to say is it okay for me to tell people that you're my sponsor and then I realized the cat is so out of the bag on this I talk about this woman all the time <laughs> she's amazing I've known her for I met her at the first meeting I I came to when I ended up in California in the night in 90 or 91 um, she's a wonderful wonderful example she has everything that I want she's warm and humble and wise and compassionate and just so giving and so loving and uh, we always love to have her come out and speak because she just does such beautiful speaking and she's so you're just really in for a treat so I give you Nanette and uh, thank you Nanette for being here Nanette you're muted yeah okay can you guys hear me now okay start should I start Okay. I'm Nanette, a compulsive overeater. Um, okay. I came to OA in 1975, and I wanted to lose weight to catch somebody who would then fix me. And I could tell from the first meeting that you guys had what I had, and I, I wanted what – it was a place I could go. The first pitch I remember hearing was – in my first meeting, a woman had tried to parallel park and she backed into a fire hydrant, which broke and the water went spewing all over. And her entire pitch of that was about how embarrassed she was and how there were people watching and it was hor horrible. And that was her pitch. She didn't talk about food once. And it was from her pitch that I knew I could stay because I didn't have to talk about food. It was for the business of living. I didn't have those terms in my head yet, but that's what it was. I knew I could stay and talk about me. Um, it took me eight years to get abstinent. In the eight years, I was abstinent eight times. Um, I was abstinent. The first long-term abstinence was three days. And then I made a five-day, and then a four-day, and a 15-day, 17 I think it's 23 and 27 is 27 days was my seventh abstinence in that eight years. And finally, the eighth time, which is the current time it took. <clears throat> and I've now been abstinent 37 years. So there's a big difference between 37 years and 27 days. And so I don't really know why I'm abstinent because every single time I tried, it was meant to be the abstinence forever, and they never were. I came into OA with a diet mentality, and I just had a diet mentality. So every abstinence was the secret diet. I heard that it's not a diet club. We're not in a diet club. So I didn't use the word diet, but it was a secret diet. It was meant to lose weight and to... Um, be Miss Perfect. I wanted you to respect me and I wanted to be Ms. OA and you'd respect me and my food because I didn't have any abstinence. I only had the fantasy of what abstinence was like. And my fantasy is that all of you ate very small portions of food, exactly what you wanted to eat that was good for you. And you did this perfectly for year on after year, day after day. And so I tried to aspire to that, which I could never do. Um, eventually, I was introduced to AA meetings 
from members of OA who were also members of AA. And one of them was speaking at an AA meeting and a bunch of people were going to hear her speak. And when I got to the AA, AA meeting, it was like, for me, it was, I didn't know anything about AA except what was in the movies, which looked pretty dreary and uh, desperate. But when I got to the meeting, it was a very vital meeting of people. They all looked good. We got there during the break. Everybody was in clusters talking and they all looked like hip slick and cool to me. And I was re really attracted to the people there. And there was such energy in the air. It was like I could, I could, I could feel it in my face. Like I, the, the energy was so thick, I could just feel it. And I kept going back. And eventually I met an, a sober member of AA who is like mission accomplished. I got to OA to get a guy and there he was. But our relationship was stormy, on again, off again, misunderstandings, blow ups. And somebody suggested another 12 step program for friends and families of alcoholics. And that's, and I went there to get some handy hints on how to manage him better. And it was in the other fellowship that hit a bottom, which I had never hit in OA. In the eight years that I was in OA, I didn't, I didn't never hit a food bottom. Um, and I started to work a program, <coughs> excuse me. I'm gonna pop a lozenge in my mouth. Sugar-free Ricola. So I started working a program. I started to transform and change. And I got a sponsor there who I was willing to listen to. Now, when I was in OA, I had many sponsors, most of whom I never called because I, I couldn't get anybody close to me. I couldn't, I didn't even have any friends because I couldn't have anybody close to me. Um, I was too much of a loner. I still am a loner and I still am a, on the reserve side, but I've transformed tremendously and, um, so my first sponsor in OA, I asked her, she was, and then I went to a convention. It was an AA convention with um, participation from my other fellowship. And during the, the luncheon, a banquet luncheon, at the table of 10 that I sat at with my husband, who incidentally was not that alcoholic, was totally separate alcoholic as my husband. Anyway, we sat there and to my eyes, there were compulsive overeaters sitting at that table. However, they left food, they left food on their plate and my plate cleaned off. Decorative lettuce, everything gone, completely clean. It was like a dog licked it, you know, it was gone. And I felt like something was wrong with me because here are these compulsive eaters, not necessarily members of OA, but just, I. I assumed they were compulsive overeaters. They left food on their plate and I ate everything. So I called my sponsor, my new sponsor for the first time, my first sponsor, and told her what had happened. And she said that I knew that was what I was gonna eat for lunch and I wasn't gonna eat again till dinner. And these other people at the table, even if they were compulsive overeaters, they could eat at will at any time. 
And so that made me feel better. So then I could see the benefit of having a sponsor, but I was still very standoffish. And then I realized that in OA, I did not have a higher power. I had a higher power in my other 12-step program, I had a higher power in the rest of my life, but not in OA specifically. And my sponsor suggested I write about what, what it was. And what came up to me at writing is that I couldn't get, see, if I were to, to define what higher power was, I call my higher power God, and I see God as being loving and infinitely wise, but not in OA. The reason being that if God loved me, he wouldn't have made me a compulsive eater. He wouldn't have made me fat. Um, he wouldn't have made me fat. So how can I trust the God who made me fat? So I could not get in touch with a God in OA. Um, I'm maintaining a 55-pound weight loss. This is the smallest I've been as an adult. When I was in junior high school, I weighed 40-some 40, 40 pounds more than I do now in junior high school. Um, I'm sure I could do the math better, but I'm just quickly telling so I can move on with my story, but at least 40, 45 pounds. Actually, it's 50 pounds. I've weighed 50 pounds more in junior high school. So I wrote about it, and I could not. So then she suggested, my new sponsor, that I write about what I got, wanted God to be like. And so this is what I, I wrote about it, and this is what was the working, the working sentence for me about God in OA specifically. I wanted God to want me to live sin, that everything that happened in my life was in preparation for that time. And then she suggested, why don't I try that God out as if it were the God of OA and the rest of my life? And so I said, okay, I'm going to try it out. As soon as I made that decision to try it out, this God that I, this OA God clicked in with the rest of my higher power, everything. So what that meant to me was that there was nothing I could do wrong, that every experience I had, every binge, every overeating, every mistake, every time I ate to say fuck you to somebody, which I often did, not that they knew I said that, but that I that ate as if I said that that it was an experience provided to me by my higher power so that I could live sin later. And so every, it was no longer, you know, what's wrong with me? Why did I do this? I shouldn't have done this again. Because every experience is not wasted. No experience in OA is wasted. And I needed that for later. I needed to have that experience so later I could live sin. So God became a friend, a friendly presence, somebody who provided me with experience of binging one more time, overeating one more time, eating the wrong thing one more time. And then I had a God in OA. So finally, after eight years of, of absence, this one started. And this one was different from all the others in that it was no longer a diet. I simply didn't want what I had. I did not want what I had. So 
I said meals at mealtime with life in between. And for me, life in between included popcorn at the movies. And I didn't, I'm, my absence, I, there's no food that I could eat that would be a break in absence. I eat everything that I want to eat. I don't eat everything, but if I did eat it, it would not be a break in abstinence because I allow myself everything. The only maybe thing that I probably will never eat is cilantro. So for those of you who hate cilantro, I hate it too. And so did Julia Child, by the way. She hated cilantro. Anyway, so meals at mealtime with life in between. Also, I discovered I had this very interesting connection to the disease of a compulsive overeating in me. And that was that I had a disease of perfectionism. And that the disease of perfectionism in me is so strong, it's like the conjoined twin of the disease of compulsive overeating. It's like if one twin got a cold, they both got a cold. If one twin took an aspirin, they both have aspirin in their circulation system. It was that joint. Whatever happened to one happened to the other. That meant that if I were to recover from the disease of compulsive overeating, I had to also be willing, just willing, to recover from the disease of compulsive overeating. Sorry, I to pop the lozenge off out of my mouth. So, meals at mealtime, life between. So, I also said that is the guidelines for abstinence. Guideline meaning that it would not be a break in abstinence if I didn't follow my guidelines. I simply did not follow my guidelines, my own guidelines. And there may be consequences for not following my guidelines. I might have to feel bad about myself. I might have to eat a few days to feel bad about myself. I might have to tell somebody what happened. I might have to gain weight. But whatever, if I didn't follow my guidelines, I knew there'd be consequences. And so the first thing I really realized that um, when I went to a restaurant, I ate too many rolls and it made me feel bad. That was the connection. Restaurant rolls made me feel bad. Um, so I said, if I'm in a restaurant and if they have rolls, I'll have one roll and one pat of butter, no matter which runs out first. And so what I had been doing is I would take a roll, use up, open the butter packet, use the butter, finish the roll, but there'd be some butter left. So then I have to take the second roll to use up that butter, but there wasn't enough butter for the second roll, so I have to open the second butter. And then there'd be some second butter left. I have to take the third roll to use up the second butter. And then it would escalate that way. So I said one roll and one pat of butter, no matter which, which runs out first. And when I did that, I felt great. I ate what they served me at the restaurant because I figured it was my portion. If they served it to me, it was my portion. And that wasn't small eating, whatever, depending on the restaurant. And that was another day of abstinence. And there was one restaurant that put down this basket of rolls and there were assorted rolls. And then I had this big debate, which one looks best? If I take this one, maybe that one will taste better. If I, this is small, but maybe it's really tasty. So I had this big debate going on in my head. And I somehow knew that it would be a bad idea for me to, be, to feel deprived. So I decided to have one of each kind of roll 
and they would all share the same pat of butter. There happened to be three different kinds. I had three different rolls. They all shared the same pat of butter, and then I ate everything else they served me, including the decorative lettuce, the parsley, and every grain of rice. And that's not a diet, but I started to lose weight in spite of myself. I started to lose weight. Okay. Um, I think I have 15 minutes left. Can the timer tell me if I have 15 minutes left? That's okay. I'll just go on. And my sponsor, who had helped me get my higher power, for her, for her own reasons, could not sponsor anymore. So then I was without a sponsor. And with whatever sponsor I had, I never talked about food. I always talked about other things. And sometimes, at the time in OA, there would be an announcement, um, step sponsor and food sponsor. You don't hear that much anymore. But the thing is that when I told somebody my food, what I was going to eat, or even what I ate, if they made a comment on it that was even remotely judgmental or trying to change me, I never talked about food that, to that person ever again in my life. So food is very personal. And that's the way it is. I, I'm trying to talk about sponsorship. Um, okay. Um, I finally did step one at, after eight years of being in OA. And I couldn't do step one because I didn't want to be powerless over food. I did not come to OA to be powerless over food. I came to OA to be powerful over food. So I couldn't do step one. And yet I was having trouble being abstinent. So finally, because I did have recovery in another 12-step fellowship, I knew I had done step one before, so I thought maybe I can translate what I did in the other fellowship to OA and get myself to do step one and be powerless over food. And so I was told in the other fellowship that for me to ask an alcoholic not to drink was the same as asking a tubercular not to cough. The guy who has TB has to cough because that's what his disease made him do. If every time he coughed, he said, this is the last time I'm going to cough. I'm going to work 12 steps. I never will cough again. He's saying two things by that kind of statement. He's saying, one, I have power over a cough. And two, I don't have a real disease. And I know that TB is a real disease. And I know that when you need to cough, you are completely powerless over it. You just have to cough. So in order for me to do step one, I had to make it okay for me to cough, which is, means I'm powerless. It had to be okay for me to binge and overeat and not blame myself. Because if I did blame myself, I was saying I had power over this cough. I was not powerless. So that's what I did. I acted as if, I acted as if that was okay. I felt like a fraud. I felt that if people in OA knew what I did, it, it would be I would be a fraud. And but I try had tried to try doing this step in other ways, such as I tried writing about it, talking about it, thinking about it, all different ways, but none of that ever left my head. In order to really feel powerless in my gut, to really truly believe I'm powerless, I had to treat my binging and overeating like a cough. And after I did this. Uh, 
for about three months. And I overate and didn't blame myself. I knew God was providing the experience for me. Anyway, after about three months, something happened to me that I didn't expect. And what happened is that I had a shift in perspective from out of seeming, seemingly out of nowhere. But looking back on it, it was because I was willing to be powerless over food, truly powerless over food. And that shift was that I felt for the first time in my entire life, blameless. I was blameless over compulsive overeating. Because every time I overate, my pattern was to say, why did I do that one more time? I shouldn't have done that. What's wrong with me? Other people can do it. Let's try harder next time. That kind of thing. I was not only the prosecutor of, against myself, I was witness for the prosecution. I was providing evidence. And suddenly I felt blameless. And when I felt blameless, I felt this relief. And I realized only in, in retrospect that I always ate for relief. And the relief I was after was the relief of being me. I had such self-loathing. I didn't like me in any situation. Happy, sad. If it was a good situation, I didn't deserve it. It was a bad situation. I was messed up one more time. It was always relief from being me, whom I, in some, on some level, loathed. That's time. You have about, you have 10 minutes left. Thank you, Sandy. Sure. Um, so, so I was abstinent finally. Finally, I was abstinent. The first year was like a honeymoon. It was so smooth. I had that feeling that many people have, but doesn't last, I can tell you, that I had food beat. It was so easy, so smooth. I was happy, I was cheery at meetings. I looked like I had a glow about me. And the second year, I still had that, but it was more difficult. Sometimes it was more difficult, it wasn't quite a honeymoon. And then for a while, I knew I had to have a sponsor for me to keep. I didn't have a sponsor at the time I became, at the time of this particular abstinence, which is the one that's lasted so long so far. Um, in January, it would be 38 years. Right now, it's still 37. But anyway, um, I, I didn't have a... Okay, so I got a sponsor, and it was going well. She was a member of AA and, and OA, and we got along really beautifully. And then one day, and I was not having trouble with food, we were talking on the phone and she says, Nanette, I want to ask you something. Do you have a bottom line? And I said, no, I don't. I'm just meals at meal time with life in between. And she says, I think you should have a bottom line. And I, I disagreed with her because, and I explained to her why. If I had a bottom line, which is a line that says, if you reach this line, if you cross this line, you, you have failed. You've messed up. And I wasn't having any problems with food. It was going beautifully. And yet she wanted me to, to determine when I would determine I would fail. And so I said that I am such a passive aggressive person, which I have, I was raised to be a passive aggressive person. I much changed, but nevertheless, it's something in me is passive aggressive. I said, if I had a bottom line, there was something, there'd be something inside of me that would want to go there. 
consciously, I would do anything not to go there. I would sweat, torture, not to go there. But there would be something in me that would drive me to cross this line. And I explained that to her and she says, I still think you should have bottom line. And I was afraid of losing her as a sponsor because it was going well. So I said, okay, I'll come up with a bottom line, but it has to be an honest one, which, which means that I agree that I've reached this bottom line. I'm not abstinent anymore. So I quickly, so I gave some, myself some moments to think of a bottom line that, that I won't try to cross because it would be very difficult. It would be a big mistake. So this is what I told her. Okay, I have a bottom line. My bottom line is a month of binging. If I binge for a month, I'll be sure. And I could tell from her breathing that she was exasperated with me. And in fact, she kind of she kind of fired me not that long after. And so then I didn't have a sponsor for about 15 years. I went sponsor shopping. I asked certain people to be my sponsor, but when I called them, it never worked out for me. And so I didn't have a sponsor for a long time. I currently don't, I have a sponsor currently. When I was 20 years abstinent, I found somebody who I respected. She, she owned herself. She, she owned everything she was. She had self-honesty and I admire that so much. And so she's been my sponsor for 17 years now and it's still going strong. But for about 15 years, I had no sponsor, I, but I was still looking, but I had temporary sponsors that never worked out. So I think I'm actually really close. I'll just share, um, I'll just share how I see my recovery. I see my recovery. Yes. I made an error and you have, um, hold on. You have uh, about 13 minutes left. Oh my God. Okay. Well, it's up to you. If not, we'll just ha have more questions. Okay. Maybe I'll share a few more things and then you'll let me know. Yes. I'll let what? you know at 10 minutes. Okay. Let me go know at six minutes. Okay. When I have six minutes. Okay. So, oh, okay. This sponsor who later kind of fired me, um, before, before she asked for a bottom line, I was watching TV at home. My husband was out. It was about 4 p.m. in the afternoon. And I suddenly, for no particular reason, wanted to see what was in the pantry. So I went to the pantry, opened it up, and there was this box of Nabisco crackers. I said, oh, I didn't know this was here. So I opened the cracker up, I took a grab, and the way I, could, I store crackers in a Nabisco is I roll it up, put a clothespin to make sure the wax paper was rolled up, put it back in the tab, put it neatly in the, back in the pantry. I took this grab of crackers to the front of the TV, I ate it, and it was gone. It was like, I almost like I breathed it in, it was gone really fast, like a snap. Oh, it's gone. So I went back a second time, did the same thing. Unrolled the wax paper, grabbed the thing, rolled it, the clothespin, the little thing in the slot, put it back. And the second time, and it was gone again, like nothing. So I went back a third time. And the third time, I knew I was going to eat it. No, no sense going back another time. This was already the third time. So I took the entire box and sat in front of the TV and ate the box of Nabisco crackers. It wasn't a full box. 
but it was a box of Nabisco crackers. And then I felt horrible. I think at that time I was nine months abstinent. And I thought, what did I do? I ruined it. I never been abstinent this long. It was going so well. And then I didn't want to share it. But I learned a long time ago that you are as sick as your secrets. And I don't want to be that sick. So I had to share it, but it was hard. So at first I shared it with an OA friend and she didn't think it was that bad compared to the way I've been eating all along. But I thought, but I dismissed her opinion, not in front of her, but internally I dismissed her opinion. Oh, she's not my friend. She just wants to be nice to me. This is bad. So finally I got the courage to call my sponsor and ask her the big question, am I still abstinent? Because if she said no, then I would have been, show her what a good girl I was in OA. I would have changed my abstinence date and continue on. And everybody knew that I was following the rules. I was raised to be a rule follower and people think I'm still a good OA member. But if she said, no, you're still, you're still abstinent, it would be like, Phew. The voice of recovery for me says, I'm still absent. I'm okay. But she would not tell me. She said, you have to decide for yourself. That's not what I want to hear. I called her to, to confess and have her give, me, give it to me. But she wouldn't tell me. But just before we hung up, she said this. Ask God for the willingness to be rigorously honest. And when she said that, I knew that was the answer. So we hung up and as soon as... Any, every, any time I remembered, I would practically chant, dear God, please give me the willingness to be rigorously honest. And then I would go on with, I just kept doing that. And I did that for about two days. And Sunday evening, something happened. I suddenly heard somebody say this. If you change your date, if you, if you'd be starting at step one, you'd think you're starting at step one. But God, it's, it's like, if, if you change your abstinence state, it would be a lie because whatever this looks like, it isn't what it used to be. And if you change your abstinence state, it, you would not be rigorously honest, you would be lying. In order to be rigorously honest, you cannot change your date, you have to keep this. And this message came in a split second, but this is what the message said to me all at once. And it was almost like a voice said it to me. I was by myself in the living room and I turned my head even to see who said that and nobody was there but me. So I took it as, so I couldn't believe that God could be so generous with me. But I, I, I believe what it said that in order to be rigorously honest, I have to keep, I'd have a tainted abstinence to be rigorously, rigorously honest. So I still couldn't keep it to myself. So I went to a meeting when I went to a meeting and this is before meetings had timers, by the way. And um, there was a woman there who was like an old timer who I always felt intimidated by, who I will mention her name was Doris. And I had to share this big thing that what I had done with those crackers and that I was not changing my abstinence date. I was keeping it even though I did this big glitch in my recovery and then, so just not to be sick of my secrets, you know, I had to share it on a meeting level. So after the meeting, a lot of people came up to me 
and they hugged me and they said they were happy for me. And I was surprised because I thought I would be shunned. I would, I thought I would be like the Amish, Amish community. I'd be shunned in some way. Well, I did this terrible thing and I'm still keeping my abstinence. And then there was a short line and Doris was at the end of the line. And she reached me and she said to me, you've got it, you've really got it. And I did not understand what she meant, but I was grateful she wasn't mad at me. And so that was another day of abstinence. Um, I'm sure my, Sandy, how much time do I have all together? You have seven and a half minutes. Okay, thank you. Um, okay. Um, okay, so I've always, I've had high cholesterol for a long time and I haven't been willing to take a statin to, to remedy that because one of the possible side effects of statin is muscle damage. And I have a walking issue that cannot afford a muscle damage, even testing, even testing to see maybe I have this side effect. So I never took it. And, um, and then I was working with this guy at work. My whole life I had normal blood pressure, kind of a low normal, very safe. And I had a high blood pressure and I had to start taking pills for it because of working with this guy that I couldn't shake. I, I, for some reason, I just could not go back to my low normal. So these medic this medication did something to me that I had an effect the blood pressure and I had to wean off it because it also has a rebound effect, which means that if you stop taking it, you have even higher blood pressure. So I had to really slowly wean. So here I have the two things wrong with me, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, not taking any meds for it. So I, so I had to change my eating one more time. So I went to a workshop to um, enhance my knowledge of healthy eating. And at that workshop, they served an all-you-can-eat buffet of vegan food. They serve dinner Friday. They serve breakfast, lunch, and dinner Saturday. On Sunday, they serve breakfast and lunch. And because I had this immersion in eating this way, and also I weighed myself before going just to get a reality check. When I got home from the weekend, I weighed two pounds less. I lost two pounds in this workshop that at all-you-can-eat buffet. And I have what I call buffet rules. I can have anything I want, as much as I want, but only the first time. In other words, no seconds. If I have seconds, even, even if it's lettuce, all bets are off. I, I, I lose my, my boundaries. So no seconds, not one grain of rice, not one lettuce leaf, anything. And so, but I'm not self-destructive anymore. My plate may look like a hill, but that's all I'm gonna have. You know, it's, in fact, I think the miracle for us isn't that we eat three times a day, is that we stop three times a day. And whatever, however big my plate is, it does, after I eat, it does not travel onto the kitchen for more. It ends there and that's the end. Okay, I'm just gonna share one more thing and then I'm gonna stop talking, maybe. How much time do I have left again, Sandy? I'm sorry. You have four minutes and 15 seconds. Okay. I'll, I'm going to put two things in there. I'll get the first. Um, I was at this new job that, um, and I, I worked for these people for a year. I had four bosses. 
they among themselves were equal, but they determined one of them wants to be my official spot, um, supervisor. Supervisor. So at the end of the year, the, this organization, they had annual evaluations. So I was dying to see how I was doing with these four people. And so the woman who was my supervisor gave me the form. It's a three page form that had you know, quality of work, quantity of work, sticking to rules, they had a bunch of you know, items. And you're supposed to rate yourself with numbers on them. And numbers, they had seven ratings, one through seven. One and two is under the column that says improvement needed. Three, four, and five was under the column that said satisfactory. And then six and seven, it was under the column that said excellent. And so the, she gave me this form and she wanted me to fill out my own form. She would fill out a form for me too. I would turn my form to her. She would look over my form. We'd have our interview. And the final thing would be hers. And so I didn't want to do my own. I, I wanted to know how I was doing with these new people. I liked them a lot, but who knew how I was doing? So anyway, I had to do it. So it made me have to be honest. What do I really think of my work? So in honesty, I thought they could not hire somebody to do a better job than I did. They could hire somebody who had different strong points and shortcomings, they could do that, but an overall better job, I didn't think so. So I thought if I think that, which I did, it must be excellent. So straight down every single item that I do this. If I thought it wasn't so good, I put a six down. If I thought it was pretty good, I put a seven down. I didn't ever go into satisfactory. The entire three pages was under the excellent column. And then I, then I turned it into her, then I got panicky. Like, how dare I think that I'm perfect? I, mean, I make mistakes. I have a typo sometimes. I mean, I'm, I forget. And then suddenly I realized something. The form did not say perfect, perfect on top of the, six, um, the sixes and seven. It said excellent. And for the first time in my life, those two concepts separated. I did not know they were joined until they separated that being excellent is not the same as being perfect. And they were two separate entities, but in my whole life, I thought they were one and the same thing. And for the first time in my life, it got separated. So we had our annual, her evaluation and interview. She left vast majority alone. She, up, she downgraded maybe two of my sevens to a six. She upgraded some of my six to a seven, more upgrade than downgrade. And for that year, I got the highest raise you could get in my category in that business. And so the big important thing was there is I could be excellent without being perfect. In fact, I'm documented as being excellent. I'm in the files. You look at my file, it says excellent. So that helped me a lot with my evaluation of my eating. So the last thing I'm gonna share, and then I really will stop talking, is this, the way I see my recovery is like a forest. And the trees in the forest are days of abstinence. And there are enough trees in this forest to make the forest a forest. And some of these trees are like Christmas trees and oaks and sequoias and firs, just really healthy trees. But some of these trees are tree stumps. It's dead, maggots crawling through them. And if you hike over there to that grove in that meadow, there's several tree stumps. But if I only look at the trees, I'm gonna miss what else is in my forest because there's more there than trees. There are waterfalls and streams and California poppies and clover 
and blue jays. And I don't look at a tree stump in a God-given and God-made forest and say, oh my God, there's a tree stump here. Let's trash this for forest and go on to the fresh one. No, I know it belongs there. So if I'm to believe that my recovery is God-given and God-made, I have to accept everything that's there, no matter what my personal opinion is. And I believe my time is... You are correct. Okay, so I'll just end by saying that if I ever think that I've broken my abstinence, I don't make a decision of whether I've broken it or haven't broken it for three to six months. And in the meantime, just in case after three to six months, I don't think I've broken it, I'm not gonna mess it up now. So I just keep on keeping on. So thank you so much for letting me go over and I'm finished. Thank you. Thank you, Nanette. Okay. The first question is, do you think old timers have anything to share and what did you learn from them in the beginning? Um, yes, old timers do have something to share, but it depends on the old timer. There's some old timers that I can feel very comfortable with and learn from. And there are others who remind me that my program is different and that I have my own story. And so it depends on the old timer, but I'm a believer of experience. And even if the old timer shares in a way that doesn't fit me, I benefit from everyone's sharing, even if it's something to say, this confirms who I am and what I do and what's good for me. And it's good, I'm happy it works for you and I know it works for others the same way as it works for you. So I hope that answers the question. Yes, thank you. What does God want from you now and what do you want from God? I want God, honestly, I know it sounds stupid, but I want him to give me knowledge of his will for me and the power to carry that out. Now, I used to want knowledge, but not the power to carry it out, just in case I disagreed. But now I actually want the power to carry that out because it'll make everything smoother. An example of, this is what I want from God. Before I, I started speaking, I said a prayer. I, said, I say three prayers. The first prayer is the third step prayer. The second one is not actually a prayer, but it's a, a sentence from the big book on 12-step calls. And the sentence is this, tell him exactly what happened to you. So that's my job is tell you exactly what happened to me. And then I say a prayer that I made up myself. And this, I think, explains God to me. Dear God, please give me the willingness to be honest and the courage to be who I am because that's who you made. And sometimes I might add, and that's who you require me to be. So there's a show on TV um, about actors in New York where they ask the actor a famous question like, if you died and you go to heaven and St. Peter says, what do you want St. Peter to say to you? And I want him to say, you live the life we intended you to live. Good job. And I don't know what that is. I just keep on keeping on, that's all. Thank you. Is OA just like AA? And why doesn't a person have to do it perfectly? Like they, why don't they, why doesn't a person in OA have to do it perfectly? Whereas they would have to do it perfectly in AA. So nobody in AA is asked to have three martinis a day and stop. 
and not go beyond. And I'm not a member of AA, so I really can't speak for AA, but I know that I'm not required. Well, I heard the, the because it doesn't work for me, because to be perfectly abstinent and not make any mistakes, it's, it's synonymous with being on a diet. And diets, you get on, you get off. You can't wait to get off. And this is the way of life. So every human factor that I have in my body as a human being is gonna have to operate in a food improvement area because I'm not going on and going off anymore. Um, it happens naturally. I don't even eat popcorn at the movies anymore. And, but I can, if I did, if I wanted to, I could. It would not be a break in abstinence because what's the point of finding ways that you can fail? If you do something and make a mistake, you aren't a mistake, it's a mistake. See, if I used to have a lot of toxic shame and toxic shame defined as when I make a mistake, I don't get that I just made a mistake. I think I am a mistake. And that used to happen all the time in every other abstinence but this one. So when I make a mistake, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for sure, but I can get rid of it eventually. I can talk to people. I can philosophically evaluate it and come up with something. So what's wrong with going on with my life? Now, see, everything changes if you're alive and viable. Things that are in life are change. It's viable. The only thing that really don't change are statues and dead people because they're firmly in the way they are. And I actually, the last seven years of my life, almost eight in, in March, I've changed my eating drastically um, through that workshop. I don't eat animals anymore. I used to keep in my office bags of M&Ms with peanuts, which I would eat maybe twice a week, around three o'clock. I don't eat it at four o'clock because I'm almost off work. I mean, I'm happy enough to be almost off work. But three o'clock, it's still a little dragged down, pop of M&Ms in my mouth and then peanut surprise in the end. But once I stopped eating animals, they had milk solids in there. That's out. No more of that. So I gave it to the custodian who wanted all my M&Ms and I was happy to give it to her. And I had to, no more, Jell-O was my guilt-free dessert, but Jell-O is made out of gelatin, which comes from animals. So no more gelatin, unless it's made out of seaweed, which there are such things. So I, it, it just evolved. And I evolved because I, I don't want to be self-destructive with the high blood pressure and the cholesterol. By the way, when I started eating this way, my cholesterol went down 83 points. It went out 83 points, first year. Okay, so I hope that answers somewhat the question. Thank you. Okay, so there's several parts to this question. How do you sponsor your sponsees? Do they have to eat a certain way? And do they have to call you a certain number of days? Okay. Um, my, I, have, I don't have a special time for anybody to call. Because if I'm waiting for somebody to call and they don't call, I'll get really pissed off. So forget that. Just call me when you need to call me. And I will share to the best of my ability what I can share with you. And you have my attention. 
um, a, a, nobody has to eat the way I eat because I don't think anybody can. And if they can, I'm surprised because I, can, I can't even eat the way I eat, but I do. So I'm not going to advise anybody to eat anything. And as I said before, if somebody advised me on how to eat, I would could never talk to them again about food because it's very personal what you eat. And people have to live with what they eat and they can't see if somebody superimposed something on me, then if I'm pissed off with them, off goes that superimposing, you know, I, I would eat at them. They're, they don't have to know that I'm eating at them, I will. So no, I don't advise people what to eat. And one of the first things of people I sponsor is I tell them that your program can't depend on me. Because if I drop dead tomorrow, what would your program be like? So when my sponsor, my very first real big long-term sponsor said that to me, who I, she was my sponsor for five years. She was a sponsor before my current sponsor, really great person, not the one who fired me. That, that, she was a great person too, but it, it, we just didn't get, okay. So the one I had for five years, she told me that, that my program couldn't depend on her. And by her saying that, it gave me permission to find resources for myself, people on the program to call certain meetings that, that I particularly like, outside reading, outside help. I am responsible for my happiness. And so my program couldn't depend on her. She was always there when I needed her, always, and helped me tremendous, tremendously. I mean, all the way from being single to being married, I mean, tremendously. Um, so no, I don't have requirements. The only requirement is that you do go to OA meetings. I actually had somebody I sponsored one time who said, I don't wanna to go to meetings anymore. Can I just call you? And I didn't say no, I just said, in order for me to be your OA sponsor, you have to go to OA meetings. And the way you show me that you're a member of OA is you go to OA meetings. I didn't put it quite that way, it was much more gentle. Um, but no, you have to go to meetings. I don't care when you call me, I mean, I don't call, care if you call me or not. I had somebody who called me every nine months. And I didn't know, she, I still sponsored her until she called me and called me her sponsor. But, you know, it's up to you, the person being sponsored. You're tapping into my life. And that's fine. I'm happy, happy to share. But you're responsible for your program. And I don't take responsibility for people's program going well or not going well. I just, it's too much. I'm a human being. Okay. That's the end. Thank you. How do you handle cravings or thoughts of wanting food that would derail your abstinence? And what is your specific abstinence, if there is one? Okay, I can think of one time I was at work and I had an hour lunch. And I, I guess I ate fast. I had like 20 minutes left. I was outside of the building where they have benches. I'm sitting on the bench, I, I was just craving food like mad. And I soon, as soon as I get off the bench, I'm going to get X, whatever I, X was in my mind, even if I'm late getting back to work. And I knew as soon as I got off the bench, I would do that. So I couldn't, this was such a strong craving. I couldn't, I just knew what I was going to do. I was planning on it. So I sidetracked that. I said, I'm not getting off this bench for 15 whole minutes. I timed myself. After 15 whole minutes, the craving diminished. It wasn't entirely gone, but it wasn't something I was going to go get and be late to work, getting back to work. It was still in my mind, and 
but it, it didn't seem so urgent anymore. So that's how I bypassed it. I said, wait 15 minutes and I timed it. It could be another time, 15 because I took five minutes to get back to my desk, you know. But if it had been longer, it would have been longer time. And then I forgot what, there was a two part question. Was there another part? Do you have a specific abstinence for yourself? I do. Um, one meal at a time, I make non-animal food choices. And I couldn't have done this in the vacuum if I hadn't had that immersion. I can't just, I, I went with my younger sister and, I'm, and I'm, she's not in OA at all, but she had to go back to work on Tuesday and I took a vacation day on Tuesday. So we drove back I-5 from Santa Rosa, California, back down to LA on Monday. So on the way down I-5, you stop at Denny's. And so that was my first test meal. And so I, she ordered a veggie burger with fries. And I ordered a side order of rice, a side order of vegetable, a side order of avocado, um, a side salad with no cheese. And I put together a meal. And from then on, one meal at a time, I make non-animal food choices. And so it changed drastically, and that's what I'm doing now. Thank you. Could you please tell us your pizza story with your husband from your early days? Okay. Well, when I first became absent after eight years of trying, there came a little dilemma because my husband and I always ordered a large pizza with everything on it except anchovies. And it got delivered to the apartment and he would have half and I would have half. And somehow I knew that if you're in recovery, you can't eat exactly the same way as you did when you're practicing. But I wasn't willing to give up pizza and I wasn't willing to give up a lot of pizza. So I said, I'll have one slice less than my half. So they deliver it, I take one slice off, he can eat it, it can be in the refrigerator, it can be part of lunch the next day, it can go down the garbage disposal, just for that meal, one slice less than a half. So I did that for two years and I claimed the recovery that it was there for my willingness to give up that one slice when we had pizza, which we had maybe once a, a month or maybe twice a month. So something happened the third year. I, I still allowed myself one slice less than a half, but suddenly I was able to stop at one slice more than a fourth. And sometimes one slice more than a fourth is exactly the same as one slice less, less than a half, depending on how they cut it. But every now and then it was less. And for the whole third year, that's how much pizza I ate. The fourth year, I was able to stop at a quarter of a pizza. I still allowed myself one slice less than a half, but I stopped at a quarter, it was enough. The fifth year, I sometimes had, I'd had some spaghetti, some salad. Anyway, the, I do eat, still eat pizza, not that much. My, my pizza has no cheese on my, my slice. Um, and um, it just has veggies on it. It's like veggies, tomato sauce, and a, and a bread. And so that's, I love that. And actually in the past half a year, I've not been craving pizza that much. So he, he's, I just have the pasta and the salad, but I still allow myself all the way to one slice less than a half. It just, if I hadn't claimed the recovery in, in that giving up that one slice, I wouldn't have known that in my life, I would slip into another gear and then slip into another gear and then slip into another gear until I'm totally normal with pizza. 
not even with cheese, you know? There was a time of no cheese, what's the point? But now I love everything else that's on it. Just like in, I love everything else that I, I can have, that I want to have. Okay. Thank you. How did you finally decide about your abstinent date after Doris's comment? And maybe you want to repeat the comment. Well, Doris said, you've got it, you've really got it, which I now interpret many years later. I mean, for years, for, for decades, I didn't know what that meant. But I think that the, the abstinence I was going for after I ate um, the Nabisco crackers was the kind of abstinence you ought to have, not rigid, but reasonable. That box of crackers thing, that didn't happen for years later. I mean, just didn't happen again. Um, Oh, can you repeat the first part of the question? I've lost it. How did you finally decide about your abstinence date after oh. Doris made that comment? Yes, I did not change my abstinence date. So I get to have a tainted abstinence, but being abstinent is the same as being pregnant. It doesn't matter whether you're a little pregnant or a lot pregnant. Any form of pregnant is pregnant. So that's how I see it. Can you tell the forest story? Oh, I think I just, I did tell it. You already did. Okay, great. Um, so one of the fellows writes that they like that you have thought so many things through for yourself. And the fellow says that they have no bottom line abstinence. Do you think it is necessary? I do not think it's necessary. I, my bottom line, abstinence of record is still 30 days of binging because nobody's ever asked me for another one. And I gave that to my sponsor who demanded I have a bottom line. But what's the bottom lines can help you stay on track, but it also can help you determine when you fail. So what's the point of that? If you're doing okay, if you're feeling your way, and, and I'm, I'm totally for experimenting within your abstinence. You can change it, see how it works. It doesn't work. Go back to what you were doing before. It's fine. <clears throat> you're not dead yet, so it's good. And when you're Thank dead, you. nothing brings permanent. Um, how did going to OAA meetings help you work your program in OAA? I don't think it really helped me a lot, except it helped me more in my other fellowship. And I respect AA so much. They have a very deep program that I also have, a, I see, I also have a very deep program. I do think I run deep. And, um, but I don't do what AAs do because I'm not an alcoholic and I don't want to compare myself with the great AA program, but mostly it helps me in my other 12-step program for friends and families of alcoholics, not really in OA. OA is by itself for me. And OA, OA is not enough in terms of going to AA. I don't go to AA for the OA thing. I might go for the other fellowship. Thank you, Nanette. Okay. Thank you for your amazing lead. Thank, um... That's Thanks, all the questions Annette. we have time for. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, oh so, so grateful. <laughs> I, just, I love you so much. I just think you're amazing.
And it's great because every time I listen to you, I hear something new and um, you definitely have what I want. And that just thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you everybody for being here. So that is our first half of our uh, session. And so it is now time for a lunch. Beverly? Okay, I know you're here. All right, so I'm gonna ask you to unmute. Great, now she's the co-host, now she can get on. We're ready for you, Beverly. There we are. Hi. <laughs> Hi, everybody. No pressure, just you're the keynote. It's fine. <laughs> um, thank you, Sheila, and everybody here who's been doing such a great job. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. My name is Beverly. I'm grateful to be in long-term recovery from food obsession, and I have an eating disorder, by the way. Uh, I've been on since the uh, beginning of this uh, workshop, since nine o'clock this morning, and um, it's been a wonderful experience so far. Uh, Ron talked about, we are not bad people getting good, we are sick people getting well. And um, Everybody has touched me in, in, in a great way, in a, in a very beautiful way. Um, Nikki was so uh, amazing. And what she, some of the things she said, well, she said she has no filter. You know, and as compulsive, obsessive people, we don't have a filter. You know, I don't anyways. Um, you know, we want it our way. We want to do it right now. And it's got to be this way. And I know the way. So that was Nikki and Nanette. Nanette is the most courageous woman in OA. Um, she's honest and open and loving and accomplished. Uh, it's just a great pleasure to share this with, with everybody. And, um, you know, I am vintage. I'm an oldie, a golden oldie, as we say. But the fact is, I love to think of myself as vintage. You know what vintage is. So vintage is more than 20 years, but less than 100. And you know, you're not old till you're 100. That's the deal. So here I am today going to talk about sponsorship and my beautiful journey in life. I've been around this program 57 years. Count it, baby. Since 1963, I walked in these doors. Yes, I knew Roseanne and Marvin and somebody, who was it? I think it was Nanette talked about Doris, the old, the old timers, the judging. It was, it was a marvelous time in our history. I was part of all of it. And um, grateful, grateful to be part of it. Uh, something that I'm into these days is called listening. You know, one of the gals at our Friday morning meeting a couple of weeks ago said, she shared, she said, listening is the highest form of love. 
And that we do that for each other is a gift. And recently, I, I, someone pointed out to me about a great rabbi who said, uh, even if you're sure, even if you're sure your opinion is 100% correct, just think about opening your mind 1%. Maybe a little doubt, maybe somebody else has a, has a point of view that uh, you can listen to. So on that note, with the courage of Nanette and all my beautiful OA people that are here to support me, thank you everybody for being here. Um, I'm grateful to share my story. And uh, so years ago in the program, we did something called a prenatal inventory, which was before you did the fourth step inventory. And what it was, was we wrote an imaginary story of what it was like to be in the womb based on the information that we've had from you know, people in our lives. And the thing that came out for me from my pre-inventory was that I wasn't ready. They forced labor on my mother and I wasn't ready. And that really is the theme of my life. I wasn't ready for kindergarten. I wasn't ready. I couldn't measure up. Don't call on me. I'm not gonna be able to do this. So, you know, I came to, oh, I'm born in Chicago. Uh, I'm born in the thirties. I'm 89 years old. I know you're shocked. Uh, you know, I have 49 years of abstinence that what, what, what we call abstinence, I call it my first final surrender. But I was 40 years old when I had this first final surrender that, we're, that I'm going to be celebrating later. And um, so for me in the beginning, uh, when I was, you know, came to the program, I was 32. And I, as I say, I, I have a life today that's quite amazing. Um, and sponsorship has been at the core of all of it. Yes, I, I, the theme of my life has been, I'm too little, I can't do this. Going into kindergarten, I was the fattest kid. I thought I was the fattest kid. Growing up, we were all fat. Uh, my whole, you know, I, I was nine years old. When I was nine years old, I was 150 pounds. But going into kindergarten, there was another girl who was fatter than me. And I thought, whew, I'm okay. They're not gonna, I'm not gonna be, you know, the one they point the finger at. At nine years old, I was 150. Going into high school, I was 220. I started on pills and shots, uh, you know, in, in, those, in those years. And I, I was hooked on amphetamines, laxatives, diuretics. I smoked three packs of cigarettes when I came to OA. I chewed three packs of sugarless gum a day. I drank, you know, any number six packs of so diet soda because in the beginning they said, uh, 
just don't eat sugar and flour. And, you know, I came to OA in 1963. By that time, I was a professional dieter. I'd been on pills and shots my whole life and, and, and diuretics and laxatives. Uh, I always used to say I wasn't an addict, but I was an addict. I am, you know, I am addicted to those substances. Um, and OA was the first time I ever lost weight without pills and shots. And it happened in, you get the picture, I was, I was a chunko all my life. However, um, I was a functioning fat person. And um, when I got to OA, it was my cousin who danced before me. She and I were professional dieters, you know, all kinds of uh, programs. And the, the latest, the, the diet du jour is what we did and the doctor du jour. Uh, and what new medications were there to keep us from this, this terrible thing that, you know, we didn't call it a terrible thing. In those days, it was natural. It was natural to lose weight, gain weight, gain weight, lose weight. It was, a, you know, a vicious circle. Uh, you know, today I realize, and in the program, it really, even in the program, the first eight years of my program was in this yo-yo syndrome. I couldn't get it together. Kind of, you know, Nanette shared a bit was eight years for her. For me, it was eight and a half years in the rooms until I was able to get to my final surrender, which, you know, is, a, is what we're going to be celebrating today, the 49 years. But when my cousin danced before me, and she and I were soulmates as far as, uh, as far as the food was concerned. And in those days, being big city girls, we were obsessed with our appearance. Uh, that's, uh, we just wanted to look good and get married. You know what I mean? <laughs> that was it. And she danced before me, skinnier than I'd ever seen her. Her face had a glow. And she said, I got it, Bev. This is it. She hands me the OA literature and I look at it and it's talking about God. And I said, this, this is not for me, this God thing. You know, Harold doesn't believe in God. So, you know, I, I, I was so enmeshed in my, my relationship that I couldn't think in terms of Beverly as a whole human being uh, and being entitled to anything of in and of for myself. And so, you know, she, oh, nice going, that's great. I put the, I put the uh, literature aside and a uh, couple of weeks, the pain of the weight gain and this terrible yo-yo syndrome, the pain of it, the weakness of it. Here I am, this, you know, a person who never had to look for a job. People sought me out, I was bright. <laughs> academically all these things and and I couldn't stop eating unless I had a substance in me and here she was doing this for the first time without a substance and I thought well I couldn't get it out of my mind we lived in the South Bay uh, before the 405 and she tells me about the OA meeting which is in West LA and I thought well, I'll try it. 
and I make the trek and I go in a big black file overcoat, a black, a thin little, you know, uh, material. And I, I covered myself because I didn't want anybody to see those hips and thighs that flapped in the breeze. And I walk in the room and there are these ladies my age, housewives. They looked like housewives just like me. And I, um, they welcomed me. I sat down in the back of the room and I hear them start to share about this terrible thing they can't stop eating without, you know, help. And I thought, oh my God, I started to cry. I cried overwhelmingly. I can still get the tears now when I think about it in the cellar of my heart. Um, because I knew I wasn't alone. It was a seminal moment for me. I never got a sponsor. I never shared. I went home. I got home and somehow I didn't have to eat before I went to bed. It was the first miracle in my life. I spent that first, I lost the 30 pounds. That was my problem. Oh, incidentally. So I spent most of my adult life around 200 pounds, 190 to 200. And uh, I, 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 I fooled around with, screwed around with 30 pounds. I get, lose 30, gain 30. Lose 30, gain 33. Lose 33, gain 35. You get it. So here was that year, I lost the 30 pounds that were my, my, my problem. 160 was my, that was my fighting weight. I'm five feet eight. I'm eight and a half. I'm almost five eight still. <laughs> Anyways, uh, 30 pounds. Uh, and then at the first crisis in my, and I, of course I couldn't get to the meeting. I used my cousin as my, as my sponsor. I didn't have to, whole year I didn't, no pills or shots. It was amazing. I got to a few meetings. At the first crisis in our life, I had to go back to work. Uh, we lost everything. I was married to a gambler. And, you know, you can't be married to a gambler successfully without being a little bit of daring yourself. And, uh, you know, my daughter always says, oh, mother, you take chances. And I say, yes, I do. I'm grateful for it. Sometimes not so smart, but I'm learning. Anyways, um, I left OA because I, and I went back on pills and shots for the next four years, damning those people because they taught me I was addicted. I didn't know it before and I, well, I have this disease. How dare they? Don't they know who I am? <laughs> Just a little humility problem, nothing serious. Anyway, it was five years later, we moved to the valley. We moved to Tarzana. My cousin said, oh, Betty, now you can get back to OA. There's OA in Van Nuys. And I went to the program in Van Nuys and she said, you've got to get this certain person. In those days, we thought the answer was in somebody else's head. So the idea of sponsorship was an easy, easy transition for me. I, I just knew somebody else knew more than me. I'd been a seeker all my life. I was looking for answers all my life. I read all kinds of books and they were always male 
incidentally. It was, it was a heterosexual patriarchal society. It was always going to be in some man's head that I'm going to learn about the secrets of the universe and get rid of this thing and people will know who I am. Yada, yada, yada. Anyways, so here we are in Van Nuys and all I can do is cry at every meeting. I cannot find the words to describe how I felt in those days. So 19, this is 1965 when I came to, from 65 to 68 were my years in the valley. And those are the years where gray sheet was invented. Uh, the, you know, the woman who wrote it, Irene was there and all the other, uh, notaries, <laughs> notables. And in those days, the AA, the slick, gorgeous AA guys came to the meetings. We listened with every word, Chuck Chamberlain and Clancy who just died. These were the people we fed off of. It was, it was amazing. It was an amazing time. And I was, I, I got a sponsor right away. I went right to the top. I wanted the head person. And it turns out she led me to another person who cared about me. Nobody cared about me. I was the baby of the family. I had a prominent father and brother, and they were all talented. And then there was Bevy, and I peed in my pants and sucked my thumb. But here was Linda, who cared about me. She said, well, you've been here. What are you doing? And start calling me. What, me? Anyways, she led me through my first, she was not the star I had, I had hoped for, but she led me through my first inventory. And that was, and they put me to work. I went to meetings three or four times, five times a, a week. They put me to work immediately. All those stars that I thought, they made me secretary of a meeting. Um, they made me a delegate to the World Service Conference. And uh, in those days, sugar, I was on gray sheet. And I would have, you know, we said it took 21 days to get rid of an obsession, oh, a habit, 21 days, 30 days, you were home free. On day 31, I would take a dill pickle in between meals and, you know, the weight would come back on me. But they kept me in service and they kept me uh, reporting and accountable. And I wrote my food, write your food down, call it in and eat it. Dumb little thing. Write your food down, call it in and eat it. I did it. And then I would, you know, I'd have this great success for 21 days and day 23, I turned into a pumpkin. And then I would say, oh, what's the use? I might as well eat. But there were plenty of people around that I shared with because I felt less than. So it was not a problem. This was not a level playing field here. I felt less than. And you know, as you believe, so you are. I felt less than, I was less than in my book. Even though in my real life, I could achieve all kinds of other things. But in my heart of hearts, you know, my mother told me I was a piece of shit or whatever, or you, you what, why 
you be like your sister? Why can't you, what, what? And uh, so those are the, those are the tapes we have in our head uh, that don't go away. And from wherever our backgrounds are right today, all of us here, we all share that lack of self-esteem from wherever it comes from. You know, for me, there was no incest or abuse or maybe some emotional abuse. Sure, my mother was a screamer and yada, yada, but we somehow managed to come together in weakness. So I had no problem finding people to share with and using people as sponsors in the early years. I wanted this thing. I knew this was the answer. So yeah, in 1965, I was a delegate to the World Service Conference. You know, in those days, everything was in LA, you know that. Uh, well, those of you who aren't in LA don't know that, but the LA Intergroup knows that. Everything was in LA and it was every year and every meeting was entitled to a delegate. So, you know, I went to seven meetings. Somebody slept me into the, the conference. And from that first conference, 1965, I was a delegate. I sat, I met Roseanne, I met AG. I saw these people, they were, oh my God, they had this thing too. They understood at a level, anyway, well, you know. So, but what I understood, being in that room, I can't remember the name of the hotel and, at the airport, but being in that room, I knew I was part of something greater than myself. We had a message. We had a, a vision. It was important. I mattered. I mattered. I knew I had this thing. And it was a gift. Now, how did we handle it and what did we do? That's a whole other story that our, you know, our history is, is full of. We were compulsive, obsessive, impulsive, mishugi. Mishugi means a little crazy here and there. Um, we did the best we could. But from that moment on, and so for the next I got to the I got to that conference every year as a delegate. Somehow I managed, and then in nineteen, so I but still couldn't get my act together. Uh, in nineteen seventy, they moved to Phoenix, uh, the hellhole of summer. I'm I'm a big city girl. What am I doing here? So it was. Uh, it was culture shock for me. There was no OA. OA had started here. At the same time Roseanne started, there was a woman here who had started it, but she was long gone, could not find her. I could not get a meeting going. There was another gal that came over uh, and the two of us would meet. We couldn't, we couldn't start a meeting. But anyways, we did get a meeting going in 1971. I still, couldn't get my, I couldn't get 60 days, 90 days. If I had 70 days, I'd blow it. I mean, eight and a half years, all kinds of sponsors, people that stayed with me, that held my hand, that said, Bevy, you can do this. 
and you know, later in life. So I'm a spiritual, I'm on a spiritual journey. I don't know about you. I, some of you might be. <laughs> and uh, spiritually, you know, we're all the same. Uh, I get so choked up. It's, uh, it's a little silly at this point, but it's not silly. It is who I am <laughs> and I'm grateful to be there. But anyway, it was in 1971, we finally got the meetings going. I guarded it with my life. You know, I used to call my sponsor and scream, you people in LA, you don't know. You don't know what it's like to be out in the trenches. There is no, people are here when they're pickup trucks and their hair and rollers. And I'm this, you know, city girl. You guys don't, there's meetings everywhere in LA and I'm, just whining, crying all the time. Now I finally have meetings. I got a couple of meetings going. OA is in Tucson already. We started an intergroup. Uh, well, that comes a little later, but 1971, 1970 March is when the first meeting started because a third girl, there was an, an earthquake, remember in LA, and another gal came over she called the Arizona Gazette, put an ad in the paper, and we had oh, about 13, 14 people at the first meeting, and we never looked back. Today, we've got you know amazing meetings in Phoenix. But um, uh, so there I here I here I am, 1971, screaming at my sponsor, and it's before Halloween. So Halloween is when my kids used to trick and treat. And of course we would start planning trick and treat for in, in August, we'd start putting candy bars in the freezer so there'd be enough and then we'd replace them and then we eat them and blah, blah. And here it is, I'm raiding the freezer and eating these candy bars, miniatures, you know and screaming at my sponsor again, what is wrong with me? This is my original sponsor, the big shot of OA, and screaming at her. And she said, oh, Beverly, there's beauty in desperation. What? Beauty in desperation? My guts are spattered on the floor. You're telling me there's beauty? And she said, yes, because now you're open. Now you're, I said, okay, what do I do? And that's the thing about sponsorship. You ask somebody to be your sponsor who has what you want. This woman had everything. She walked on water. And finally, she said, Beverly, you know what to do. Just go inside. Go inside and stop counting days. Stop counting days. You had to have back-to-back -back perfect abstinence. You were nothing unless you had perfect back-to-back. -back. Stop counting days. And something happened to me and I have never looked back. The obsession for those candy bars in the freezer or whatever it is, the obsession was lifted. I didn't have to do that crazy behavior. And she said, you know what to do. And I said, yes. 
write my food, call it in and eat it. It's a dumb prescription. It worked for me. Um, I did that 12 and a half years. Do you hear me? No sugar, no flour, no eating between meals uh, for 12 and a half years. And so what I what I said, what I'm going to be celebrating later is I'm going to be taking a candle later for my this birthday, this abstinence birthday, which is really abstinence survival. It's, you know, my son puts lots of pictures of me on Facebook. He's so proud of me at my age and, you know, blah, blah. And uh, recently I had a back attack when I was in San Diego. We went to this chiropractor that he knows and he said, oh, this is your mom. Oh, I've seen, oh, oh he said, oh, he says, you're, what did he say? He, oh, you're a survivor. No, he said, you're a warrior. No, he said, you're a thriver. And I thought, yes, that's who I am. And I'm an abstinence thriver. I'm an abstinence warrior. <laughs> I'm, uh, I never call it abstinence. I had to move away from a strict, rigid, perfectionist idea to get to the place where I can accept this beautiful woman for who she is, where I could put down the food and have a choice. I had no choice. My sponsor helped me have a choice. I've had many sponsors in my day, um, sponsors that have helped me get through my fear of being in public with my thighs. That's a great story. Um, uh, I, I don't, I, I'll tell it maybe, I don't know if I have enough time. There are so many wonderful sponsorship stories to Beverly, tell. You have 10 more minutes. Oh, stop it. <laughs> okay. Wow. Uh, 10 more minutes. Okay. So where do I want to go? Where do I want to share with you? I want to share about sponsorship, that it's the heart and breath of this program. You know, somebody called me this, I have a friend who's 95 years old. He's a devout Catholic who goes to mass every day, even in COVID. And he called me, I hadn't talked to him in a while. And said, oh, I'm in the middle of a Zoom. This, oh, oh, he says, that's that thing that you do. And he said, oh, it'll be wonderful. And he said, so, so what is it about? And I said, it's about sponsorship. Oh, well, what is that? And I started explaining to him that, you know, there's a story, the story in the big book of Bill D, AA number three. It talks about the first sponsor. You know, Bill and, Bill and Bob said, now that we're sober, we got to do something. We got to get to work. If we want to keep this thing, if we want to keep this thing, we got to get to work. And they find this guy who's a, you know, a, a, a out and out, one of the worst cases. And Bill, this guy, Bill D, and he sees the light. And Bill says, these guys know what they're talking about. And that was the beginning of the first spot. I will, I want what they have. They know what they're talking about. I can listen. There's hope. 
And so that, that piece of Bill and Bob were doing that for themselves. They knew they, if they're gonna stay sober, they've got to carry this message. And for me, from that very first sponsor on, I, you know, after my first inventory, she says, well, you're ready to sponsor. And I said, oh no, I can't do that. I'm not ready, but she said, oh yes, you are. You want to keep this thing? Do I want to keep this thing? You bet I do. This is, you know, this is the essence of my life. So, uh, I do this, we sponsor, I sponsor, I sponsor for my own recovery. I don't know if you're gonna get helped. I don't care, I mean, I do care if you get helped, but I know that this is my side of the street and I look to sponsors. Today, you know, I've morphed into a God squad because after 57 years, um, there's a God squad that I, I contact. There's a home meeting that I, I, I live with. But I sponsor to the level of my ability. And when I sponsor, it's for my recovery, always. If you want what I have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then I, we can do business. And I have never not done business with somebody who has come with a full heart. And it's a, it's a kind of a language of the heart that we connect with, that we share. It's a, a very beautiful thing. And uh, I've tried to leave the program many times, uh, not many times, but a few times. Always it's been a couple of people that have talked me off the edge. People that I sponsor, you know what teachers say. Teachers say that they learn more from their students than they do from the books and the professors. And it's just like when you have children, you learn more from your children than you do very often from the great thinkers. So we learn from our sponsors, we see ourselves, we learn from each other. I do this for me so that I can continue to grow. I can learn new things, expand my horizon. I want choice in life. I want balance. I want, I want, I want. So I'm learning new lessons in humility. I'm, and you know, Bill Wilson talked about the highway to humility. That's what this program is, you know, we're, we're spiritual, novices we're getting in we're uh but i i'm in a, a new kind of program that talks about a spiritual curriculum and that we are you know what we know is once you put the food down you got there's that spirit there's that beauty inside there's everything you've ever dreamed of is deep inside and we just keep peeling away those layers sponsorship sponsorship relationship. It's not somebody telling me what I have to do. Although that helps sometimes if you really, you know, respect the person, but we guide each other. And we're here because we're both in it together. It has to be a 
a level playing field. So, and that's the part that's so wonderful. So I actually left the program a number of years ago, actually 20, 25 years ago. I left for a short time and then came back. And um, it was because I started, I have some wonderful stories. I have, a, I have seven years at the level of world service from 1975 to 1982. And in those years, I was exposed to people and sponsorship on the same level as I was. It was a, uh, an amazing time because it was 1975. I was living in Arizona. I was a delegate to the World Service Conference. I took six people from Arizona to the conference because it was such an important thing for me. I wanted them to understand this was something greater than ourselves. We had a message. We had something to give to the world. Anyways, it was at that conference that four trustees resigned and they went out to the conference and they said, we need volunteers. We need people who have two years of back-to-back -back abstinence. Two, two, two years of minutes. abstinence. How many? Two. Two more minutes. Okay. So I'll tell that story another day, another time, but make a long story short. That's how I got appointed to the board of trustees. And with great trepidation, I went before this board and I walked in this big room and I'm this little baby. Arizona hick and I walk in and here's this board with all these men and at the head of the and I'm scared to death and they're going to be interviewing me to see if I'm okay to be on their board I'm scared to death I can hardly breathe and there's my sponsor sitting at the end of the table and I sit down and she says hi there <laughs> and the rest is history I got appointed and I shared about how it was four years the obsession had been lifted. And I walk out of that room and a guy runs after me and says, oh, me too. It's been lifted from me too. And um, it's been a glorious journey since then. And um, I, 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 I wanna share with page 25 of the big book. I need glasses, wait. I want to end this, this portion, because I think it's important. Hello. <laughs> the great fact is just this and nothing less, that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and toward God's universe. Thank you. Mm. Thank you very much, Beverly. Um, I'm now going to uh, read you the first question. Okay. That's oh, actually, okay. Connie, I'm going to just jump in here. Oh, and I'm sorry. Oh, no, forgive me. You're, you're just fine. I needed to let you know this. We have, and I, I didn't do that, so I was remiss. We, again, we have this very exciting thing that is happening with Beverly, and she is celebrating. Tomorrow is her abstinence birthday, and we're just celebrating it just a little bit early. She'd called me a couple of days ago and she said, do you think it would be okay if I, if I took a candle? I know. And I said, oh, we would love to. And, she, and then she immediately pulled back. She said, oh, no, 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 we don't need to do it. And I said, oh, yes, we do. Now you've got me all excited. 
So not only are we going to do a candle, I said, but I'm going to then send you the very candle that I am lighting. And I've got a really special candle and it's perfect gardenia. Oh my God. Perfect gardenia who just shared for us. And it talks about restoring energy and leaving tiredness. Tiredness, I'm sure is a word you don't even know anything about. And you don't need to restore energy. You are full of energy. And it was just wonderful to hear you. So we aren't going to hear from everybody singing, but I'm going to sing happy birthday. And we just invite everybody to join us. We're going to sing happy birthday, celebrating 49 years. So wait a minute. So let me say something here. Yes. So the reason I wanted to do this is because last week, somebody took a candle for 44 years. In Phoenix, we don't do this. I have never had a candle for my birthday. We just give chips. And I said, I don't want 49 chips. <laughs> no more, no mas. So, the, I, and so when I saw David have this candle, I thought, I would love to do that. So, and I know my, many of my friends in Southern California do that. And uh, so I'm very thrilled. And thank you, Sheila, for indulging me. <laughs> okay, well, you and I'll sing. You are so welcome. Yes, it is an honor. It is an honor. We're so excited. All right, so we're going to sing happy birthday, and everybody can sing at home as well. Okay. And everybody if I, move if your I could lips. Candle and play my guitar, I'd do that at the same time, but I can't. So I'm just going to mm, give us our note. Happy, happy birthday. birthday to me. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. To me, happy birthday, happy birthday dear Beverly. Happy, happy birthday, birthday to you. And keep then coming back. Coming back. Thank you. Without a snap. That was cute. Thank you. All right, blow, <laughs> blow, blow it out. Look at that. That's great. Yay! Happy birthday. <laughs> Happy, happy birthday and many more. And I'll get that uh, get that in the mail to you, my friend. Happy, happy birthday. And Connie, thank you. Connie's going to take it away and she's going to feed you the questions that we've got. So you guys, thank if you have questions for Beverly, put those in the chat. You can direct those to me and we'll get those to Beverly. She's going to answer questions for about 40 minutes. This is great. Happy birthday, Beverly. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Um, first question, specifically... How do you work with your sponsor on a daily basis? You do still have one, don't you? I have a God squad. So my sponsorship has morphed through the years. Um, I do have a God squad. I do not work with anyone on a daily basis. There's about five people in my squad and we talk you know, weekly, daily as needed. Um, yes. Okay. Uh, question number two, have you done more than one fourth step? Do you still have reservations? Excuse me. Do you still have resentments that show up? Yes, I've done many, many, many fourth steps. So in the beginning years, particularly, Every year when I went to the conference, I gave away, well, I, I did my, my original fourth step, but then I did, I did a house cleaning every year and I would find someone at the World Service Conference or convention to give it to. And uh, I did this for, I don't know, a lot of years. 
Um, and I, of course, you know, you know what, I continue, I improve, and I practice, 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 practice. That's what this program is about, continuing to take personal inventory. Um, yeah, okay. Thank you. Uh, third question. How has your recovery affected your relationship with family members? Oh my God. Well, so first of all, if there were no other people in the world, I wouldn't have a problem with relationships. <laughs> so with uh, other family members, so how, so how has my program, is that what the question was? How has your recovery affected uh, your relationship with family members? How has my recovery changed my relation? Well, I'm not the same person, you know. Uh, I am not the same person. So in my, I'm, I'm, I've been widowed for 16 years. My, I was married for 46 years. My husband would bring me flowers and I'd say, oh, you know, I don't like live flowers. Bring me a plant. I want a plant. And I would poo-poo, you know, whatever he did. If it wasn't exactly what I wanted, if it wasn't perfect, it was, it was worthless. So my, I did a lot of journaling through my years. Uh, I am a writer by, in, in my heart. The journaling never stopped. Uh, and I'm still a journalist. So my relationships with my family, I mean, I, I'm not the same person. So here today I have, I have two children. I have seven grandchildren. I have nine great grandchildren. So they wanna be with me. Well, I'm not, not everybody, but I'm, my son, my daughter, my grandkids, um, two weeks ago, my great granddaughter spent the weekend with me. I mean, it was the highlight of their week. Uh, you know, I'm not a gimme, get me, buy me, bring me person anymore. And uh, everything changes. Uh, I'm, yes, everything changes, right? Thank you. Next question Do you still overeat sometimes? Do I still overeat by whose schedule, by whose, what? Uh, yes, I overeat. I think, um, I think the whole world overeats from time to time. It doesn't make them compulsive overeaters. And for me, I have a lot of differences with Roseanne and a lot of things that I have morphed into as a result of not being perfect with my abstinence. And I call it, you know, I morphed into food sobriety. I was, you know, we have to remember 12 and a half years, perfect. And then I had this other phase. Of, uh, so the last, I don't know, what is it, 30 years? Um, I eat it, not 30, it's 20, whatever, however many years. I was led into understanding in God's universe, God meant us to have, my God, meant us to have 
great pleasure in the world. To be able to see a tree in the forest, to see, to uh, welcome the sun. You know, you live in Arizona, you got the sun. It can be deadly, it can be wonderful, it can be whatever it is, but it's light, it's bright, it, it's there, it's something to appreciate. So I get to pontificating, I'm sorry. <laughs> Forgive me for this, but what was the question again? Do you still overeat sometimes? Yes, I think the whole world does. Uh, uh, and, and But it doesn't make them a compulsive overeater. It doesn't make them a bad person. Uh, it means that, and when I do, it's so different. It's so different. Nothing leads me into that path of, you know what Nanette says to her bottom line for abstinence is, she's not binging for 30 days. <laughs> you know, in the old days, that's what we did. But so for me, when I, come, when I compulsively overeat, it's very uncomfortable. I can't live with Bevzu. I'm, a, I'm adorable. Why would I do that to myself? Why would I put something in my body? Or why would I do the behaviors that made me crazy, that make me think only of myself? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm learning about uh, in this course about it's just fresh in my mind about humility. Humility being, um, oh, where's my note? <laughs> it's occupying my space. No, let's say occupying no more than my space, no less than my place. So, occupying no more than my space. It's not about me, nor less than my space. I have, I have a place in life, I matter. It's not about me, but I matter. So that's the part. So when I compulsively, I, I, I never think in terms of eating compulsively. I might overeat here and there, you know, there's, God gave us this these wonderful food to enjoy the blessings of, of nature and the world, and food is one of them. You know, in the beginning, we said, my sponsors, even in the gray sheet, it was very important to enjoy your food because food is a great enjoyment, whether you like it or you don't. If you can't do it, don't do it. But, and in the attack phase, it's very important to have strict boundaries and strict limits. And I did for 20 years, not 12 and a half, not just 12 and a half, but the eight years before, it was important to have boundaries, to understand that's the attack phase until we learn, until we keep refining personality. We take those steps, we make those amends, we continue to take personal inventory. We never turn away from it. We clean up our side of the street. Hello, I'm not a victim anymore. It isn't your fault that I'm addicted. It's my cleaning up my side of the street understanding that uh, I'm not a piece of junk and I'm not queen of the May. 
I want to come to the center. I want to live within these parameters. So if I overeat, the balance goes up. I know immediately, immediately. You hear me? Because I don't know why, because I want this thing. I want to be able to live in God's universe. I want to make amends to my children for abusing them when they were little. You know, I said to my daughter the other day, who's 59 years old and a very successful attorney. And I said to her, you know, honey, th this time of COVID and I'm doing so much introspection. And I said, you know, honey, you were right. I really didn't give you enough attention. And she started to laugh. She said, oh, mom, you did the best with what you had. And I think to myself, wow, to get to this, and, and, and what this program has done for me, to get to this phase of life, to be in my 80s, to be fully functioning almost, I, you know, I totter, I'm a, I'm a cancer survivor, I got neuropathy, I got spondylosis, you know, yada, yada. But to be in this position, and I get to admit when I was wrong, I get to try to make amends to my children. Imagine if my mom or my dad would have been able to do that. So it's a very special gift to be in this position, to have children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren. You know, I dance, my dance partner lost his lost two sons at the age of 40 and has one grandchild. And some people have, you know, no children or if you, you know, we've all experiences, the losses, the loss of in life. And as, as I get, I'm gonna be 90, you know, in, in, made. And uh, if you want to look at it in a morbid way, it's life is about loss. And it's also about love. And it's about sharing and giving and being able to be present in this moment. And that's what this program has had done for me. You know, so I wrote my food down, I called it in and I ate it. So that was commitment discipline and accountability. That's the big deal I forgot to tell you about <laughs> with sponsorship. When you have a sponsor, you get to be accountable. Somebody's gonna call you on your shit and if you don't like it, you go on to the next one. So that's, I, nobody was gonna tell me what to do, right? And now somebody is pulling my covers and I have a wonderful squad of people, and some of them are here right now, that look under my covers all the time, every week, and they, they tell me about those glaring defects. And they talk me off the ledge very often. So that's the being accountable. And ultimately, here I am, 49 years, food sober, abstinence warrior, here I am and uh, the thought left me. Mm. Important thing, but it was about being accountable. Ah, yes. So that accountability gets us 
to be accountable within ourselves. You see, I had no self-worth. How could I be accountable? I didn't even like women. How could I like myself? So that accountability factor. So the sponsor, we sponsor to the level of our sobriety and the sponsor is someone you, who has what you want. And that sponsor sponsors so he can stay balanced, sober, present, just one day at a time. Okay. I'll quit while I'm ahead. I'll go to the next question. How's that? Okay. Uh, my dad and mom taught me I had to be perfect. How do I get past that now? I still have those old ideas. Oh, what a question. Yes. So, so perfectionism is the ultimate killer of joy. And that's what we want to do. We do not want to claim joy. We want to punish ourselves until we get to like ourselves, until we get to love ourselves, until we get to know that beautiful God center, higher power center. So perfectionism, oh my God. When, so that was, you know, that, this is home base for me, really. I got over, I got over, like Tessie says, she's Beverly survived herself. I got over getting over myself with a, in a physical fitness program where I learned that failure is not a bad thing. Failure is our teacher. We don't learn from our successes. We learn from that part. That's the weakness that we share. That's what we learn from. And we fail forward. You know, Michael Jordan says, well, I missed 10,470 shots until I got to be in the NBA. And Edison said, I did 4,999 experiments until I, until I invented the electric light and what would Al Gore say about the internet and uh, all of us that are on the cutting edge, we're failing forward to find a serum, to find a vaccine for, for COVID. We're going to, every failure is a step in the right direction. It's a, it's a way to learn from. However, when you are a perfectionist, you want to, and you are a compulsive, obsessive, impulsive person, you only want to take yourself down. You're never gonna make it. You're, you're never gonna be as good as your dad. You're, you're, look at your brother, you, you can't measure up. Okay, you weren't valedictorian of your class. You came in third. Whatever the script is, it was never good enough. And the, the, the saddest part about this perfectionist thing is that as good as we get, uh, we never, we don't experience, we don't, we can't appreciate excellence. Nanette touched on it, that excellence is not in our vocabulary. It's not, whatever we do is just not good enough. 
But if you are excellent, my God, that's amazing. So, and that's what we want to, you know, we want to go for. There's a lot of work that has to be done to refine our character, to get to the place where we like ourselves. For me, I've had to do a lot of affirmations and a lot of journeys into spiritual uh, philosophies. And uh, I don't, I, I consider myself a lifelong learner. I never want to stop learning. I never want to stop growing. And what I know 